Welcome to Tax 5, a podcast by the Tax Institute. I'm Robin Jacobson, the Senior Advocate at the Tax Institute, and your host of today's podcast. We love the vibe of tax, and here at the Tax Institute, we do tax differently. I'll be chatting with some of the tax profession's great thought leaders, who will share valuable and practical insights you may not hear every day. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax 5. I'm joined by Andrew Mills, CTA Life, who is the Chair of the Financial Reporting Council. Previously, Andrew was the second Commissioner, Law, Design and Practice, at the Australian Taxation Office from 2013 to 2019. He has 40 years' experience in taxation, including periods in the ATO, commerce and the tax profession. Andrew was President of the Tax Institute in 2006 to 2007, and he is a Principal Fellow at the Melbourne University Law School as well as a member of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute Advisory Board. Andrew, as our inaugural guest of Tax Vibe way back in 2020, welcome back to Tax Vibe and particularly in person at the Tax Summit in Sydney. Thanks, Robert. Glad to be here. Look, wonderful to have you here. Yesterday, you presented the Graham Hill Memorial Lecture as part of the Tax Summit here in Sydney. And you referred to a case where you had instructed Graham Hill And, of course, he went on to become a a very famous and highly regarded judge. You mentioned it was sort of to do with tax, but involved a lot of other things as well. And it got us really intrigued. There were people who were not fortunate enough to be in the session. And those of us who were would love to know more about what this case involves. So can you share with that? Sure. I mean, it's on the public records, uh, but there's there's plenty of interesting aspects to it. And the reason I picked it out was because it was the first time I had been involved with Graham Hill. But um, it was just a fascinating case in so many different ways. For a young ATO appeals officer to not be doing your bog standard, uh, go to the AAT, it has something to do with deductions or income or whatever. This was just fascinating. It, um, it involved a request for release on the basis of hardship. Uh, so you don't get those every day as a tax officer. Um, and Dr. Gerber, um, the famous Dr. Paul Gerber, who was always giving these quips in his decisions of the Taxation Board of Review as it was back then. It involved a Mareva injunction, which back in the 1980s was a little bit novel, but it was basically a freezing order. And that was obtained at the New South Wales Supreme Court. And the reason that was obtained was, um, and if I get the order right, I may, I may get this wrong. Someone may correct me along the line, but the order was something like, the guy had been under audit. He was presented with a bill that was a 167 assessment as the, the, you know, sort of the commissioner's estimate of liability. The old default assessment. Default assessment, yeah. exactly. And the, um, the bill was presented. He then subsequently went to the bank, withdrew $200,000 and took it to Lebanon. So that disappeared off the face of the earth effectively and was hard to, to track. So in response to that, this Embraer injunction was sought to stop him moving anything else or dealing with assets in any other way until... You know, liability was sort of settled. And well, next thing we know, we find out uh, that after the fact that he's trotted off to the local court to get a transfer of property between his wife or a property settlement between he and his wife under the Family Law Act, which you can do by agreement under, I think it was Section 89 as it was back then, um, under the Family Law Act. As a result, the commissioner went, hang on, you, you're dissipating your assets um, when I'm supposed to have a freezing order against you. Um, so he's gone back to the New South Wales Supreme Court and sought a contempt order against the guy, but he's also gone to the family court and sought that local court order to be reversed, which is pretty unusual, apparently. And so you'd think that we might get specialists in family law or we might get specialists in contempt proceedings or we might get all kinds of things. And we did at different stages engage some barristers who had those specialties. 
but for different reasons they fell away and Graham was left holding the can doing all of them um, and he acquitted himself amazingly. Uh, so you'd expect to see in this situation a, a boardroom table lined up with the barrister effectively representing each section of law, but you had Graham Hill wearing the hat of all these experts. Yeah. As it turned out, of course, what we were really doing is we were going to different chambers to see them independently. But uh, in fact, one of them involved uh, someone who went on to become a High Court judge. Yeah, so it was a fascinating case. It was a fascinating engagement. And the reason I'd also like to pick the case out was that it was the first time Graham probably unknowingly mentored me. It wasn't the last, but it was certainly the first. And, uh, and it was around what's the kind of penalty that you seek from a court in the situation where contempt was involved. And, uh, you know, I was all going ho young and all that kind of stuff and going, well, this guy's, you know, done something. He's had a court order freezing his assets and he's gone off and done something. Surely that's latent and, you know, he should be um, you know, made an example of. And um, there'd been, I think it was Neville Rand or maybe one, you know, I better be careful about which politician, but it was certainly a New South Wales politician who had been uh, in the media with a contempt of court matter. And I think he'd been fined $5,000. Now, this is the mid 80s, and that doesn't sound like much, but I, I did a quick calculation in my head. It's probably about $100,000 today. And, uh, yeah, well, that's uh, not an insignificant amount, but it's not going to break the bank completely. And so by telling the court, you know, there is these kinds of cases out there, and that might serve the court as a guidance as to the appropriate amount of penalty. For me, was the lesson about being temperate might be a nice word to, to choose in the way in which you approach uh, your, your responsibilities as an administrator. But where my mind's going as well is this interplay of state and federal courts. Oh. So I'm wondering how that played out. Well, absolutely. And you have to be in the right uh, jurisdiction. So whenever you're enforcing debts, it's usually the state courts that you have to do that in. And you'll see um, some cases, some tax cases around debts often being dealt with in the state courts. In fact, I recall in the last few years, it was quite a an unusual one where the Supreme Court in Victoria actually sort of almost sort of walked away from a tradition about accepting what the commissioner said was the liability based on the assessment that was presented to the court. Um, and so, you know, we, we have those kinds of interactions where state courts are, in fact, asked to intervene in tax, federal tax matters, um, that, whereas the federal court doesn't take jurisdiction over that. Uh, it is an odd thing. You'd think that... Um, courts would exercise broader jurisdiction. But there is, of course, also amongst the courts, the exchange of the scope of what they do, and they can act in each other's space from time to time. But when it comes to debts, it's only always the state courts, hence getting the injunction and the Supreme Court of New South Wales. Okay, and I'm just reminded also, when you talk about interesting cases and interplay of things, I'm sure you remember a case many years ago that ended up going to the High Court. Well, I just want to relay the story because I think it's one of the best tax cases we've ever had. And it was the story of Mr La Rosa. Now, Mr. La Rosa had been trafficking amphetamines and the police had caught up with him and he was on criminal charges and the proceeds from his crimes had been confiscated. And when the ATO came along and said, well, we're going to assess you on those proceeds, he said, you know, why? And they said, well, it's running a business and therefore proceeds from crime are still accessible. And he said, well, in that case, I'd like to claim a deduction against the proceeds. And the ATO said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I'm carrying a business of drug dealing and I had a loss in my business that I'd like to claim against my so-called accessible income. And they said, what loss? And he said, well, I had $200,000, it's something the 200000 in your story, that was buried in my backyard and it was ready to pay off a, a supplier. And the night before the night in question, when the deal was going to go down, my daughter and son-in-law came out to the garden with me and we dug up the cash and counted it and yep, all ready to go. The next night when I dug it up, Someone hit me on the head 
I was knocked out, and when I came to, the cash was gone. I've lost $200,000 in the carrying on of my business. I want to claim it as a tax deduction. And the commissioner said, you can't do that. And he said, find me a provision in the Tax Act that says I can't. And so it went to the AAT, and the AAT agreed with the taxpayer because there wasn't a provision in the Act that said it wasn't deductible. So the commissioner appealed. It went to the federal court. By this time, it had hit the media waves. And I do remember a number of radio shock jocks talking about this and how outrageous it was that a taxpayer was able to claim a tax deduction for something relating to stolen drug money. The taxpayer won again. It went to the full federal court. And then the commissioner, after having lost for the third time, sought special leave. The high court granted that special leave. And in the end, the high court said, well, the tax act, as it was worded at the time, isn't about morality. If you want to question morality, you go to the criminal code. But as far as the tax law is concerned, there's nothing that makes this non-deductible. So he got his deduction. The law was promptly changed. I'm sure you remember that. Well, the interesting thing is that uh, in that case, as in, and I recall at university um, having to deal with this concept of public policy, that fines, as a general proposition, fines are not deductible. And of course, the law was changed to make that absolutely clear as well, I think possibly as part of that, that whole set of changes. And yet it was always fascinating, and I was amazed that the public policy principle wasn't applied in that case because it's a bit with the shock jocks, you know, well, you know, it's a crime. Plus there's that other question about, well, hasn't the income already been earned? Um, so what you're arguing is it's incurred in carrying on the business for the purposes of gaining accessible income. You know, it's a bit like that case where the person got robbed taking the business proceeds to the bank. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's yeah. all very interesting. I still wonder who hit him over the head. Was it the daughter or the son-in-law? Oh, I just thought it was something <laughs> still, but there's another dynamic to that story. Yeah, absolutely. Mark your calendars. The Tax Summit is back. The tax profession's best and brightest will gather in Melbourne from the 5th to the 7th of September 2023 for the biggest tax event of the year. The three-day experience features over 70 expert-led sessions, network with the best minds in the business, gain valuable insights and get up to date on the latest in tax, all under one roof. Register now at taxinstitute.com.au forward slash tax summit and get ready to forge the future. Look, also in your role in all sorts of positions over the years, and you've worked in commerce and you've worked at the ATO and you've worked at a time with the Tax Institute as well in a professional body. You've seen it from all sides as a practitioner and as a regulator. At our 2021 tax summit, Dr. Julianne Jakes QC proffered that successful tax reform needs three things. And I love this because I think there's so much truth to it, but I'm interested in your thoughts. She said, you need an idea, a government that wants it, and a community that accepts it. Do you agree? I do, but I would just be cautious about the way you define an idea as the first point. Because I've, and look, I think I'm, I'm not alone in this, I've been a big believer that you don't take a single concept out and run it up the flagpole, as I said in my speech yesterday, because it's bound to offend someone. Um, and the successful, you look at the very successful big changes, there's always that package of changes. So whether it was rats in 1985 under Keating or ants uh, in, under Costello in 98 and, and so on, there was always a package. And the package said, well, we're going to give you a little bit here and we're going to take away a little bit here, but overall, you'll be better off. And most people, nearly all people, were better off. It may have been by a few bucks. 
but the point was that they, they were not harmed by the, by the tax changes, particularly when they were doing some big things like introducing capital gains tax, introducing FBT, those kinds of things in 1985, or when you came to, you know, the Costello changes, introducing GSC, which was an enormously big thing. But they were each able to show that, yes, we've got to do a package, we've got to structurally change um, and broaden the base, change the way in which we tax, but at the same time, we're going to make sure we compensate. Now, I remember Dr. Hewson saying back in 1992 that he took that... Um, 93 was fight back. Yeah, fight back. He said, we overcompensated. We deliberately overcompensated so that we could make sure that no one, absolutely no one was worse off because we knew within a matter of a few years that would have all been covered off anyway and it would have been paid back and it would have been gone back into balance. So it is possible to go, well, we have to spend a little bit. We have to effectively put a down payment in there to ensure that we get the change that we really need. So while I absolutely agree with Julianne about her approach, I would say that the idea has to include a package of ideas. Also, if I look at the two other elements she mentioned, a government that wants it and a community that accepts it, you obviously need a government that is committed to reform, and that's very difficult at the moment. And secondly, it's not just about the community understanding that there is going to be a trade-off or that they might win on this bit but lose on that bit overall. And I don't like to use the terminology of winning and losing as the media always does, but you know what I mean. But it's about trust. How does the community get to a point that they trust the government to be able to implement such a substantial reform package? So um, going back a step, yes, you do need a government that's committed to it. And you can see with things like Rethink that there wasn't adequate commitment to it. I'm pretty sure the Labor Party was committed to what they wanted to do in 2019, but it was an incomplete package in my mind, had the one half of it. It wasn't, didn't have the giving back part. But when it comes to you know, getting a community that wants it, there were some great comments yesterday in the panel at the end of the day. It may have been Joe Masters, but uh, I forget who, who the, basically they were, were talking about the need to get that conversation going and explaining to people. But you, you know, it, you've got to show people what's wrong. Uh, Bruce Bilson was great at saying, You've got to explain what the problem is first. You've got to tell them why there's a problem because at the moment they don't understand that there's a problem. And once you can tell them the problem, then you're able to start giving solutions. It's a bit like that old adage, um, you know, never waste a good crisis. So you've got to create the crisis almost um, and tell people, and hell, with a trillion-dollar debt, you would have thought we've got the crisis. Plus COVID, isn't this the best opportunity? It's not going to get any better than this. It should have been. Maybe we should have been doing this a year ago, but anyway. Yeah. So where do you see we go to from here? What are the next steps? And we will continue to be committed to tax reform and trying to make sure this holistic change, not the tweaking and the constant bickering and things that are media grabs. We want this to be taken seriously and looked at as an entire system. How do we do this? Well, that's that's an absolutely great question. And uh, it was unfortunate the panel didn't get to that answer because I think that that would have been great to really explore in the detail about how you do it. So, But we have an army of professionals who actually care about tax and I think we need to arm them with the ability to be able to carry on those conversations with other people um, to actually say, here are the problems. So we need to create the subject material that allows them to go, oh, okay, I do get that there's a problem in the personal tax system for the second income earner on the fourth and fifth day because of, you know, they're paying way too much in effective marginal tax rates. I do get that we've got a problem with fringe benefits tax because it's honoured in the breach and it's too wide and it catches ridiculous, stupid thing like toilet usage and all kinds of stuff until it's taken out again. Um, I do get that we have all of these particular kinds of problems, not just in the specific, but what it means economically for people, why they're worse off with the way the system is. We really need to get those little 
anecdotes out, if you like, those stories and be able to tell it in a way that tells people, we've got to fix this. This is a real problem. Um, you know, we're not set up for an age that has to deal with climate change, for example. We don't have the tax system settings that allow that to happen. So there's, there's so many little stories that we could be telling. We could arm all our members and the profession more broadly with these stories. And it will start to generate, I think. But it's got to come from somewhere. And unless you've got a committed politician um, who also has those stories and we can share it with them and they're prepared to tell those stories, then we're not going to see any reform at all. Is it fair to say that we're not starting at what I'm going to call a, a zero base? And I'll explain what I mean. If we're at a zero base, then we're trying to build up the conversation to a point where there is an acceptance that we need change or there's trust in the government or there is that understanding that we need to proceed with change. But I don't feel we're at that zero base. I feel we're actually in negative, negative. territory. Uh, you were going there. I could see that because uh, the number of the distrust that's been built the up. distrust. Mm. And you mentioned the word tax reform and instantly there are opponents and critics who will say it's always going to favour the wealthy or favour the rich or there'll be this group who misses out or someone's going to advocate for that. We're in this negative territory. We've got to get it back to a positive conversation. We do. And, you know, I mean, people talk about, you use, as you say, you use the word tax reform and people say, yes, yes, we need to hit the multinationals more or something. You know, that's their reaction. It's, it's a one single solution. They become one trick ponies and you've got to go, no, no, it's more than that. It's much more complex than that, which is why it's important to tell the story. So I agree with you. I don't think we're necessarily having to start from ground zero. We actually almost have to turn a really poor conversation around and then get it off in the right direction, uh, which will take effort. And good tax reform doesn't happen overnight. If you look at ASPRI, um, most of the ASPRI things that were done, were spoken about and reported on in 1975, were implemented 10 and 12 years later by Keating, and some of them not implemented until Costello got hold of them. So a lot of this stuff does take quite a while, and we just have to accept that it's going to take a while. Look, just as well, you and I and the rest of us in the tax profession are very patient. <laughs> and passionate. Absolutely. Andrew, thank you for your insights. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Tax Vibe. I've been chatting with Andrew Mills, CTA Life, who is the chair of the Financial Reporting Council. We recorded this episode of Tax Vibe live at the biggest tax event of the year, the Tax Summit. The Tax Summit is three days of tax technical insights, thought leadership, and world-class networking opportunities, where the profession's best and brightest come together. The Tax Summit will be coming to Melbourne. We hope to see you there. To keep up to date with Tax Vibe, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also contact us by emailing taxvibe at taxinstitute.com.au. We look forward to you joining us next time.